Before we get to our passage this morning, I wanted to mention um, just several things. Uh, One, most of you probably got the email this past week that uh, Mia Williams, uh, some of you may know Mia, she's a very regular attender here. She and her daughter Camilla come in um, and uh, they have been here for many years, um, at least since a little bit after I got here, five and a half years ago. And they're very consistent, very faithful to come, uh, but Mia, uh, lost her father last weekend. Um, he was um, not a super elderly man. He was 63, and uh, he passed away due to cancer. The funeral was yesterday. Um, so pray for Mia and Camilla and their family. Um, in addition, uh, as the last I heard, Pat Johnson, uh, who, has, of course, has been at WBC forever, um, her daughter Kathy, uh, other daughters uh, were here before as well, but um, Pat has been on hospice um, the last few days for sure, and I got several texts over the weekend saying that she was unresponsive and was very close to passing. Um, so you can pray for, uh, for Kathy and uh, Jack and Terry. Um, Jack used to be an elder here, and they attended here for a very long time. So I'll uh, pray for them. Uh, as well, and we'll update you uh, when we hear anything about Pat. Um, and then, in addition, this morning, early, I got a text, uh, fairly early, from Alan Cummings. Um, Alan is a seminary student. They teach youth group here. Some of you may know them as well. A very faithful young couple. Uh, but Bridget's grandmother, they found out, I think, early this morning, uh, is very close to passing as well. And so they were headed down to Ohio to see her. So uh, it's this morning, everything felt like it was up in the air. They couldn't teach youth group. Trevor and Maria are out of town. It was a little bit chaotic this morning in a lot of ways. Um, but pray for Bridget uh, and for Alan and their family as well. So um, you've got several folks uh, in our ministry who are either losing loved ones or have lost loved ones. So I'd like to take a moment and pray for these folks right now, and then we'll get to our passage, all right? Father, we are... Um, Coming to you this morning, um, just acknowledging that even in a congregation our size, we have several folks who are, uh, have either just lost a loved one or are about to lose a loved one, Lord. Um, We understand that uh, in in your good creation, that death is an intrusion into the world that you have made, Lord. Um, It is the greatest enemy that we will face. Um, And at the same time, Lord, we understand that through your resurrection, uh, through your power and victory over death, that death does not have the last word, Um, that you have defeated it on its own territory, that you have won a great victory, and now death has no more ultimate authority. And that gives our hearts comfort, Lord, and at the same time, since death is unnatural, we pray for these folks. We pray for Mia. We pray for the Johnson family. We pray for Alan and Bridget and their families. We pray that you would give them comfort, Lord. Be with them. Give them wisdom as they navigate uh, these various needs and situations um, surrounding the death of a loved one. And we just pray for comfort and for grace for them as they grieve, as they look back on a life well-lived, and as they look forward to the resurrection and the hope that we have in Christ that we will one day bodily be raised to live eternally with you. And so we pray for them. We pray that our church body would be able to comfort and reach out with grace and kindness, and that you'd give us wisdom as we do that as well. Be with us now as we come to your word. Encourage us, challenge us, cause us to love Christ more. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, John 12, verses 12 through 19 is where we will be this morning. When you think about the office of president... 
you have certain expectations for those that will serve in that office. I hesitate to even mention the office of president because I don't want to I don't want the election cycle to start. We're like two years away and this thing's about to get, I just, I don't even want it to happen. But when you think about the office of president, there are certain expectations that you have for the person that will serve in that office. And those expectations for you, you may not have even realized what they are and how they have been formed, why you have them. The expectations that you and I have for who will serve in the office of president oftentimes have been significantly formed by the type of media through which we encounter the president. So let me explain what I mean by that. It used to be a long time ago, maybe some of you can remember these days, that the only way to meet the candidate for president was either through something that that individual had written, an article that you would read that they had written, or through a radio address. You really never saw the person. Maybe you saw a picture of them, but you did not have any visual interaction with that person at all. Everything changed in 1960 when the first presidential debate that was televised happened that year. Most of you probably know that debate was between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. It was the first time that a presidential debate had been televised. I don't think anyone even knew how that would dramatically change the way that we approach the president and politics and the office of president and how we vote for that person. It's interesting because those who watched the debate on TV thought that Nixon looked old and haggard and tired. He had not put makeup on. They recommended that he put makeup on for the television appearance, and he refused to do it. And so everyone that watched it thought that he looked sort of out of place and haggard and, and didn't come off very well. Kennedy, of course, was a younger man, and so those that watched him on TV thought that his blue suit, even though it was black and white, bounced nicely off the gray background. They thought he looked sharp and energetic. And so if you watched it on television, you thought Kennedy won. He was the superior man, right? But if you listened to the debate on radio, which many people still did, you thought Nixon won because of his deep and commanding voice. That was how he came across through radio. It's very interesting. The first televised debate changed our expectations and without us even realizing it, the ground under our feet has been shifting in recent years even more quickly than it did in that moment. Now you and I encounter candidates through 24-hour cable news coverage, through social media, through YouTube clips. It's a totally different way to meet and get to know a person than it used to be. Now, in the Gospel of John... Transitioning over here, we've gotten hints and indications that the people of Israel are expecting and looking for and wanting a king to come. And in their expectation, they have certain things they're looking for, certain ideas about who this king will be, expectations that have been formed from a variety of places. Back in John chapter 6, some of you may remember this, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people respond to that miracle, which is a dramatic miracle, by wanting to take Jesus and make him the king of Israel by force. 
right? They had certain expectations and they thought, man, if a, if a guy can feed this many people in one pop, then we want him to be our king. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders thought that everyone would go after Jesus to make him king. That's what they expected to happen. And they thought that if that happened, then the people would revolt against Rome, and ultimately that Rome would come in and would crush the rebellion and destroy the temple and take away the leadership that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin had in Israel. So there's all these expectations over a king and what's going to happen politically in Israel from the people, from the religious leaders. But as we've seen in the Gospel of John, and I hope this has come across to you, that almost in every instance, the expectations are misplaced. They're not correct in what they think or in what a king will be and what a king should be, particularly when it comes to Jesus and his messiahship and his kingship. Obviously, Jesus is king. We know that. He comes proclaiming the kingdom. He is the king, but he's not the king in the way that the crowds and the religious leaders expect and want him to be king. And I think you can see that when you get to this text, which is probably a familiar text to you, dealing with the triumphal entry. John 12, verses 12 through 19. Short text here. And here's what we're going to see this morning. Three unexpected essentials of the kingship of Jesus. Three unexpected essentials of the kingship of Jesus. So when you think about Jesus as king, these are key elements of his kingship. But all of these, to the crowds and even to the religious leaders, and maybe to you if you're reading through this gospel for the first time, are unexpected. (coughs) Excuse me. The first one of these is that his kingship is a paradoxical kingship. This is found in verses 12 through 15. Obviously, this is called the triumphal entry most of the time, this story that we're about to work through here this morning. And it's covered, it's one of the few uh, stories that is covered in all four Gospels. But it's important to remember that you need to read the story in the midst of the context of the current Gospel that it's happening in. This story, the triumphal entry in John, comes in the midst of the reality of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. What large crowd is this? Obviously, he's talking about the next day, and so he's connecting this back to things that have just happened and wants us to read this in light of what has just happened. But this could be any number of groups. Let me show you a couple of options here. Look back in chapter 11, verses 55 and 56. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So we know the time frame here of when this is taking place is about a week before the Passover. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then check out verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? And so there's this this group of people that are looking for Jesus and are expecting him and wondering whether he's going to come to the Passover feast at all. Look down to chapter 12, verses 9 through 11 here. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, This is at Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. 
having dinner with his friends. When they learned that he was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So this dinner takes place on Saturday night. The people are obviously curious about Lazarus. They want to see him. They're wondering if Jesus is going to come. And so on the next day, verse 12, Sunday, the week before Passover, Jesus starts to head from the little town of Bethany over the Mount of Olives and heading toward the city of Jerusalem. Now you can imagine the atmosphere leading up to Passover when everyone has been wondering about Jesus. He's just raised someone from the dead. There is tension in the air. The religious leaders are trying to find him and put him to death. All of this stuff is happening and the excitement bubbles over as Jesus begins his walk toward Jerusalem. Look at what the crowds do in verse 13. <coughs> Jason, can you run and grab me a bottle of water? I'm going to need it this morning. Sorry about that. Look at what the crowds do in verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And you can see one of the key things that they do here is they, they grab palm trees. Thanks, man, for being put on the spot there. They grab palm branches from palm trees, all right? Why is this so significant? Well, it's significant here because the palm tree was a national symbol for the nation of Israel, right? So you, you tie this symbol to the nationhood of the people of Israel, and not only was it tied to Israel, but it was connected back to a previous revolt against a foreign power that had taken place about 200 years earlier. This was called the Maccabean Revolt. Maybe you've heard of this. This guy named Simon the Maccabee was welcomed into Jerusalem as a sort of Messiah, as a deliverer because he had gotten the foreign troops, the Syrians, out of Jerusalem. And as he was welcomed back into the city, the people waved palm branches to welcome him back. So if you think about this in terms of our country today, this is the functional equivalent of a group of supporters waving American flags while wearing Statue of Liberty hats and having shirts with eagles on them, right? They're celebrating their country with these palm branches. Notice what they say when they wave the palm branches in verse 13. They, they, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, no doubt you know that word, Hosanna. That word means give salvation now. That's what they're crying out. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That phrase is taken from Psalm 118. Now, we're not going to go back to Psalm 118 and, and read it this morning. We've talked about this text many times before because the New Testament uses this passage over and over again to describe Messiah and to describe Jesus. But this psalm overall presents the king of Israel as entering back into Jerusalem after winning a victory over his enemies and coming into the temple to worship there. 
That's the Old Testament context of Psalm 118. And the people here take these words out of a portion of the psalm that would have been said by the entire group, a chorus of people, and those people are welcoming the king back into Jerusalem as a victorious leader. But there's something that they say here that's not found in Psalm 118, and it's that last phrase at the end of verse 13. They say, even the king of Israel. And so they insert this here to help us understand or to make a statement about who they believe Jesus to be. Now, as they say this here, they are clearly thinking of Jesus in a particular way. They are thinking of him as a national political leader, right? Give salvation now. What sort of salvation are they looking for? They're looking for Jesus to come in, enter the city, and kick out the Romans. That's what they're hoping for. I mean, he's just demonstrated his power over death. They've seen him do other signs. He's fed 5,000 people. And so they identify him as king, but they miss a lot about what his kingship will involve. They don't properly understand it. And we know they don't properly understand it because of what John tells us in the next two verses. Look at verses 14 and 15. So we have what the people say in verse 13, and then this incredible juxtaposition comes to us in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's Cult. Now, first of all, why is this such a juxtaposition to his, the proclamation of the people welcoming as a national deliverer and as a Messiah in a political sense and as a king? Why is this so different than that, what John says here? Well, first of all, he doesn't enter into Jerusalem riding on a war horse. That would have been an entirely different entrance into the city. Instead, he comes on a humble animal. A donkey. John makes this connection back to the prophet Zechariah here. He quotes from the prophet Zechariah and identifies Jesus as the king who is, or the future king who was promised, who is, is going to come into Jerusalem on a donkey. So he's legitimately a king as promised by the Old Testament, but he's not the king in the nationalistic way that the people expected. If you look back to Zechariah 9.9, I'll show it to you on the screen here where this quote is taken. You can see here that John actually changes the first phrase of this. Notice in Zechariah 9, it says, rejoice greatly. And John here in verse 15 says, do not fear. Now, why does he do this? I think John has done this intentionally for us because he wants us to not just read this verse as a predictive promise about Jesus coming and say, oh, look, how neat he fulfilled this. He wants us to go back and read the entire context of Zechariah 8 and 9 and read Jesus's coming in light of what is expected in all of those chapters and the whole context. So I want to go back and just read a couple of verses from this to show you where he 
gets this quote, fear not. Because this whole passage is talking about God's coming to his people, returning to his people, bringing them out of exile, and blessing them, and restoring them, and making things right, and inaugurating his kingdom. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 8. What is going to happen when this king comes? For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. It's an idyllic time. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. And then here's where he gets this from. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. And so, so John takes this quote, fear not, from verse from chapter 8, and then this rest of it from chapter 9, to say, read the whole thing and understand Jesus' fulfillment of this in light of the whole expected rule and reign that he will bring. Then you have to keep reading in chapter 9 and verse 10 after the quote that he gives us. And here's what's going to happen when this king comes. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, the kingship of Jesus will bring about goodness and peace and his reign of peace will extend to the ends of the earth and it will include all sorts of people. He's not the nationalistic zealot that the people expected here. Instead, He's a king coming on a donkey, a humble king, a paradoxical king. He's humble and yet powerful. And in the next passage, or in the next verse here, we're going to find out exactly how this paradox of him being a humble yet powerful king brings about this reign of peace. How does this take place? If he's not going to come in and crush his enemies and bring about peace that way, the Romans, how is he going to do this? And that's what we find out in verse 16. I'm going to call it a postponed kingship. It's not going to happen right at the moment that he comes into Jerusalem here as an expected conquering hero. He's not going to conquer in the way that they think he will. Instead, it's a, a postponed kingship. Something else has to happen that is going to inaugurate his reign as the king and begin this process that we saw in Zechariah chapters 8 and 9. It's clear from verse 16 the disciples don't get it, right? At this moment. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They didn't get it in this moment at the triumphal entry. They knew something significant was happening, obviously. Kind of a big deal but they didn't realize the full impact of the moment and all that this meant for them and for everyone else. But they will. When? Verse 16, when Jesus was glorified. Okay, when is that going to happen? We'll get to that in a second, but this is not the first time in John's gospel that the disciples have seen something happen and maybe sort of filed away the events and said, we don't really understand this. And then later they go back and go, ah, that's what that meant. John chapter 2, in verse, it's actually verse 22. 
When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the wedding at Cana, where he turns the water into wine, and then it's the cleansing of the temple. All of these events lead them later to look back and go, oh, now that we have the whole picture, after he rose from the dead, now we get it. Jesus actually, just in a few minutes here in John 12, explains when this glorification will come out. Look down at verse 23 and 24 of John 12. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So how is Jesus glorified? This is the paradox of it, right? How's he glorified? Counterintuitively, he is glorified by dying, by suffering, and then by rising again. And when that happens, when those events happen, he dies and then he rises from the dead, the disciples are finally able to see the full scope of Jesus's work and all the pieces fall into place. And they begin to put things together. They they piece it all together. Look at verse 16 again. I want you to notice what it says specifically about their understanding. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They didn't understand the humility of Jesus in the triumphal entry fully that he rode on a donkey. They didn't maybe make this connection back to Zechariah 9. They didn't understand Psalm 118 and how it fit in until he was glorified, until he died and rose from the dead. They figure out at that point his true enthronement as the king happens through his death and resurrection. It's interesting that verse 16 says that These things had been written about him. What things? Psalm 118, Zechariah 9. Now, you could go back to Zechariah 9 and say, okay, yes, I see how that was written about Jesus. There's an expected king. But you go back to Psalm 118, you're not going to find anything about a future expected king there. That is a psalm that is written in that time period about a king. So why does John say this? Because he's giving us a clue as to how to interpret our Bibles. This is how the apostles read their Bibles. They they know that the Old Testament is written about Jesus. And so they read Psalm 118, and now that they have the full picture of his work, they're able to say, ah, yes, this was written about Jesus Christ. All of it points to him. And now that all the pieces are in place for the disciples after his death and resurrection, now the message of the king and what he's done will spread and will progress. And this is a key element of his kingship as well. He's a paradoxical king. He's a postponed king, at least in this moment here, until his work is finished. He's died and risen and ascended to the Father. And then he also has a progressing kingship. We saw earlier how closely connected the triumphal entry in the Gospel of John is to Lazarus dying and rising from the dead. So 
Keep in mind in chapter 11, verse 45, go back there for just a second, that many people believed in him, in, in Jesus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did in raising Lazarus believed in him. Then if you look forward to chapter 12 and verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so they're, they're interested and they're curious about what is going on, and they've seen these things happen. And so what is your first response when you see something shocking or amazing take place? You want to find someone and talk about it. You want to share that experience with them, what you've seen. If you were at the tomb when Lazarus walked out of the tomb with all of the grave clothes still on and people had to unbind him and he'd been dead for four days, you would probably go out and talk about that to someone. How amazing was that event? You would hardly be quiet about it. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. That word, bear witness, is the same word that's used of John the Baptist earlier in the Gospel of John. They were talking about it. We don't know what they believed completely. We don't know if they got all the pieces at this point. Probably not. But they'd seen something amazing happen, and they talked about it. They brought in others. And what's the result of them talking about it? Look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done the sign. So there are other people who weren't there when Lazarus was there, it was raised from the dead, and they came too because they'd heard about it. And so his works and his reputation are beginning to spread more and more. But you remember the crowds who were interested in this weren't the only people that had heard about it, that knew about the raising of Lazarus. We saw earlier, a couple weeks ago, how the Pharisees heard about this. Some people went to the Pharisees and complained about what Jesus had done. The triumphal entry happens. People are talking about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They're coming out to see him. He's coming into Jerusalem on this donkey, fulfilling prophecy. All of this is happening. And you get verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, I want to focus your attention on that last phrase that they say. The world has gone after him. And I think this fits perfectly with what we've seen in verses 17 and 18 about the news about Jesus spreading. Obviously, in this context, what are the Pharisees doing? They're expressing frustration, right? They're annoyed that this continues to happen. It's like whack-a-mole. They just can't seem to get him, and it just keeps popping up, and more people are interested no matter what they do. But I think John would have us read their words here as a beautiful touch of irony. And I think John would have us read their words here the same way we read Caiaphas' words in chapter 11 as anticipating what's going to happen in the future. You remember the whole deal with Caiaphas, the high priest? Flip back to chapter 11. He spoke better than he knew, right? After the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus raises him from the dead. The Pharisees hear about it. The Sanhedrin gathers together. And if you look at verse 49, 
Look how Caiaphas, the high priest, responds. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John spells out for us how we should read Caiaphas's words there. Look at 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, right? Not just for Jews, not just for the Israelites, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The Pharisees are frustrated here in chapter 12, but they're ultimately right. Just like Caiaphas was ultimately right. The whole world will go after him, right? This is the end result of his progressing kingship, which is still happening today. People, John tells us in 51 and 52 of chapter 11, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will enter the kingdom of God. The whole world, not every individual, but the whole world will go after him. But there's something I think even more beautiful about what the Pharisees say here, and it has to do with the word that they choose to use, the word world. That word is used in a very unique way by John in both his epistles and in his gospel. When you and I read this, we tend to think about the scope of the world, the bigness of the world, right? We tend to think of all the people in the world, the whole thing, and it's emphasizing the bigness. But that's not how John normally uses this word world, is it? 1 John chapter 2, he tells us, do not love the world. What is he talking about when he uses this word, word, world? I'm surprised I hadn't done that yet. When he uses this word, he's talking about not the bigness of humanity, but the badness of humanity. He's talking about a group of people, all human beings, who have risen up in rebellion against God because of the fall and because of our sinfulness. I think the perfect Old Testament realization of the world is the Tower of Babel. It's people gathering together and creating systems and structures that are sinful and trying to rebel against God and to make a name for themselves. That's what worldliness is. And John uses that word world to describe sinful humanity. We talked about this in John 3 when we talked about the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Now you read that differently, don't you? When you think about that word dealing with the sinful rebellion of humanity instead of the scope and just the bigness and the amount of people. He's a God who loves his creation even in its sinfulness, even in the human beings that he has made in their rebellion against him. He is the type of God who still desires to redeem them. And that's why he sent his son. Not because there's so many people, because because they're so bad. And he sent them. And so I think the Pharisees are annoyed here that Jesus is gaining more and more people. But ultimately, 
in the Gospel of John, their words tell us about the heart and the very reason that Jesus came to die. Because we are part of the world. He didn't come to just save a lot of people, although he will. People from every tribe and tongue and nation, as he says in 51 and 52 of chapter 11. In Revelation, we find a whole multitude of people gathered around the throne, worshiping him. And so that is true. He will save a lot of people. But he also came, and John wants us to understand that he came to save sinful people. He came to save people who are self-centered and rebellious and self-loving and want nothing to do with him. He came to die for people who could not redeem themselves. They are stuck in this system from birth and they love it in their sin and they pursue it. He came to save those people. And that is a truth, a reality that is worthy to be believed and worthy to be proclaimed for his kingship to progress by the proclamation of that reality. It's so easy to think about religion, Christianity, as being all about a certain lifestyle. If you were to ask almost everybody, I would think, what is Christianity about? What is the gospel? They would talk about it being about a certain lifestyle, a certain way to live your life, being a good person. But the beginning of a true relationship with God is recognizing this truth that you are a part of the world in rebellion against God and you cannot be a good person on your own. That's the beginning of the gospel. You're starting to understand it when you understand it's not about being a good person, then you can't be. It's understanding that you're broken and twisted by sin. But true faith is looking to the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on behalf of sinful, broken people who could not save themselves. That word gospel, we, we talk, I think sometimes, I talk around this word, Right? I assume that it's clear, and I assume you know it. We're studying a gospel. But I just want to make sure real quick this morning that you understand at the core of this word. We could spend a lot of time trying to define this. I've done a whole series on this, but I want to make sure that we get to the heart of this word this morning, okay? The gospel is the good news that you and I are not good enough. You can never be good enough, ever. But Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sins. And as king, he wins the victory over sin and death and gives us eternal life and gives us of his goodness and his righteousness. And we exchange our filthiness and our sin for his righteousness. And you access that by faith. The gospel is something to believe in, not to work for. It results in a particular lifestyle. There are huge implications for the way you live, but those are always downstream from belief in Jesus Christ, in repentance and faith, turning from your sin, seeing the badness of your sin, and trusting in him as Savior. The gospel, believing that, is a gift of grace when God opens your eyes to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as explained in the gospels. 
something to believe in. It's a gift given to worldly, sinful, and broken people by the king of everything. So this morning, I would say, if you never recognized your sin, placed your faith in Christ as your only possible salvation, consider that good news. It is news to be believed. And it is news about a very unexpected king. Not a political deliverer. He is a paradox of a reigning king who is humble, who is the, the, the most powerful being in the universe, the God who created everything, and yet comes as a gift of self-sacrifice and humility and suffering. And in his most unexpected act of all, which we are going to get into more and more as we progress through John, his death leads to eternal life for us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these truths this morning. We're thankful for your grace. I pray that you would use this passage of scripture describing the unexpected kingship of Jesus and you would soften our hearts to him and build our faith in him. Thank you for his grace and his sacrifice on our behalf. It's in his name we pray, amen.